It's very difficult to announce uh, uh, our next speaker because I'd have to ring no bell. <laughs> and that wouldn't work. Um, well, I wanted to just mention that uh, uh, we're very honored uh, that Vernon has uh, agreed to come and help us to understand important questions. Uh, I don't think I need to go into great detail, but he is one of the people who has dramatically added to our knowledge of economics and his pioneering research in experimental economics, uh, a new field. It's not a replacement for economics. It is a powerful, powerful tool uh, for economists and anyone who wants to understand the world. And I should add one more thing, that he is a real trooper for liberty. Uh, he has gone around the world, he has taught all over the world, and he has for many years stood up for the values of a society of liberty and peace and dignity and the rule of law. It's a great honor to welcome Vernon Smith. Thank you, Tom. Okay, uh, I got to figure out here what I'm, what these, let's see. Okay, folks, text, which, which, which button for advancing the, oh, that's it. Okay, this advances it, ah, thank you very much. Uh, Tom, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I, uh, I was at the University of Arizona in 19, I went there in 75, and in 1978, uh, I was invited to a Cato Institute conference at Rio Rico in Nogales. So that's almost 40 years ago. I don't know how they got my name. <laughs> you know, my mother was a socialist and I had a Harvard education. Uh, so, uh, but that's when I met uh, Ed, May, uh, Ed, uh, Ed Crane, Charles Koch, Earl Ravenel, I think Leonard Liggio was there, if I recall correctly, and uh, Alan Greenspan flew in on Saturday night to give a keynote speech. And, uh, well, that whole, uh, I never forgot it. And uh, at, at that time, there was a lot of interest in, in the Libertarian Party. And uh, Ed Clark, we got a really great uh, candidate in 19, uh, for the 1980 election for, for uh, president. And David Koch was the vice president. But all of that fell apart, and I think for good reason. The politics is not the way to go. And I think uh, the, the way Cato uh, has gone is, is the right way. Uh, along with Milton Friedman, I was skeptical of the move to Washington. <laughs> well, I was wrong, and so was Milton, and I think he admitted it at some <laughs> point. That was a great move for Cato because you've been very, very influential there. Well, there's been a blitzkrieg of speakers today. And uh, I'm not a blitzkrieg guy. I'm just Jimmy Stewart here. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so anyway, th this, uh, this talk is mostly about the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith's first book. But also, I want to make some points about how that feeds into the wealth of nations. And it's all about experiments. Or, mu or, or much of it is about experiments because the theory of moral sentiments, it turns out, is the only model we've seen that doesn't have any trouble 
with the trust games that we started running in the 80s and 90s that we were baffled as to what was going on because uh, uh, Max Hugh got shot down big time. It crashed and burned, okay? So and there was a lot of floundering around after that to come to terms with it. And so that's just briefly kind of going to be uh, what I want to do here today, okay? Uh, anyway, it's great to hear, great to be here. And, and again, Tom, thank you. You know, at my age, it's great to be anywhere. <laughs> but, but I get up every morning and, you know, it's a glorious another day in paradise, okay? All right. Uh, now, Hayek on page 18 of The Fatal Conceit, there's, there's a great quote there, and I'm not going to give it to you on, uh, I call it the two worlds qu quote. And uh, so we all live simultaneously in two worlds. Our social communities, our tri kind of a, a, a high, call, call it our, our tribal uh, identities, where our actions tend to be other regarding toward each other. David Hume called it disinterested commerce. And then secondly, the larger the world, the external world of, of extended order of market transactions that Hikes talks about, including strangers, where our actions tend to be self-regarding. Hume called that interested commerce. I think that's neat. It's all commerce, okay? A, a great term for our, what we're doing here, socializing, great term for what goes on on Facebook, as well as what goes on in markets. Okay, now Adam Smith wrote a book on each of these two topics, okay? The Theory of Moral Sentiments <clears throat> and The Wealth of Nations. Now I got a note here to remind me, I said Smith the Newtonian. I wanna say that Adam Smith, uh, well, let me first say uh, Isaac Newton uh, died in 1727. It's easy for me to remember that because I was born on the 200th, in the 200th anniversary <laughs> of uh, Isaac Newton's death. And on his death, Adam Smith was four years old. Uh, David Hume was 15. And now listen. Newton cast a long shadow. It wasn't a dark shadow. It was a, very, a shadow of light into that 18th century. And let me tell you why. What had Newton shown? He had shown that all of this order, the movement of bodies in the universe, the visible universe, could be accounted for by invisible forces. If you read Adam Smith's, one of his first papers, The History of Astronomy, I think that comes through to you because that paper is about wonder. It's about surprise. It's about human uh, curiosity about things and how that, and, and what humans do with that. Okay, that's what that book is about. And uh, also, you see, in 1757, uh, one of uh, Newton's followers had predicted, I mean, he predicted before, but predicted that a certain comet would arrive in 1757. And as Adam Smith said, it arrived agreeable to the prediction. Uh, you know, that, that, that just, you can't overestimate how astonishing that is for, in the, for people living then in the early part of the 18th century. Here's this guy who is modeling invisible forces, and he can predict with it. Think of that as a model. That's Adam Smith's model. That's David Hume's model. Adam Smith wants to do for human sociality, for economics, political economy, basically what Newton did for physics. 
That is, he wa and he looks around, there's order everywhere. Why is, where's this, all this order coming from? There's no one in charge. Where's it coming from? So there, there must be forces at work. So that, I, I see the Scottish Enlightenment period as precisely kind of, the search was on for the co other causes of order in human affairs besides what uh, Newton had de uh, developed. So anyway, that's, that's my little introduction. Okay, and I want to talk about the first um, Max Hugh, Max, maximum utility over your own outcomes. <clears throat> you see, uh, the first, my first experiments were done in the 1950s, and I was astonished at how, those, how well those markets worked. Uh, and, and all kinds of people in economics were astonished by it because, you see, we had no framework of, of process thinking. Uh, we had these models of equilibrium, and if you read Jevons' work in 1871, uh, what does he say about the conditions for actually reaching a supply and de demand equilibrium? He argues that people would have to have complete information. Everybody in the market would have to know the conditions of supply and demand that, that, was, that were governing them and, and the market clearing price. Uh, well, Jevons needed to calculate it, but, but that doesn't mean that the, that the people on the ground uh, needed it. But he assumed that surely, you know, they would have to know what he, what he knew, okay? Now, we were teaching that. I learned that at Harvard. You know, you learned that. Everybody was learning that stuff. And um, uh, th th there was the complete information story, and then also there was a story that took large numbers, and everyone had to be a price taker. Well, if everyone's a price taker, who makes the price? You see, there were questions like that that, that were not being answered. And so here I go to Purdue, and my job, I've got to, I've got to teach this stuff <laughs> to students. And I actually found it kind of, I, I, you know, I found out I really had no idea what the connection was between this theory and what people do on the ground, you see. And so I think midway that first semester at Purdue, I sort of resolved I was going to do an experiment at the, in, at, with my class. In, in January, on the first day of class, I was going to do an experiment, and I won't go into a lot of details about, you know, what the background of that was. But anyway, I'm going to show you that one, but first I'm going to show you a more recent experiment. Uh, we do workshops for high school students, graduate students in economics and others. Well, here is a two-sided uh, double oral auction where as the bids and asks are cried out, uh, an assistant is typing the bids and asks into, into the uh, computer. And so uh, <clears throat> the, the, the buyers are all been assigned values, and their understanding is that they are going to be earn in cash the difference between the value they've assigned and the price they pay in the market. So they're motivated to buy low. The sellers have been uh, uh, assigned a cost, and they make money by selling above that cost. Okay, and so, but 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 no one, uh, uh, and this goes back to Lynn's talk uh, today. No one knows anything but his own private circumstances. You just know your own values or your own costs. You know nothing else. See. And so my idea was that we're going to show uh, that Jevons is right. You see, this market won't work. So, well, <clears throat> here, here's one that's more recent. Okay, here's the supply and demand. Now, you can do this. You know, there's been thousands of these go, uh, done and all, all different kinds of shapes and everything, and these markets converge. Okay, they converge very, very quickly. And the only thing you could... When I started doing these in the 50s, the only thing you could read in economics that, that made sense out of this was Hayek's 1945 paper, the one that Lynn talked about. And he has an earlier version in 1937, which 
if you read, it's in, very interesting to read the 37 paper because you can see he's building up esteem for the one in 45. Okay, and then here's uh, that uh, um, January 1956. Uh, so I have 22 people in class. I make 11 of them buyers and 11 of them sellers. And I went through this, and wow, right away, it, it converged. I thought there's something wrong with the experiment. Uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, it's, it's the symmetry. Okay, the equilibrium price is the average value, the average cost, that's it. So let's do one that's asymmetric. It converged too. All, everything converges. Okay. All right, from this beginning, we went then to more, especially after I went to Arizona in the 70s, uh, and we became electronic. And now people are, the experiments, you're sitting in a monitor, okay? And if it's a market experiment or an auction of some kind, you are, you are competing through the terminals of, of, a, of, a, uh, of a computer. Well, we expanded this. this uh, with this start, we started to do, uh, uh, oh, interdependent demand, where you don't just get a value. What you're willing to pay for, mar for uh, for commodity A depends upon the price in B. And there's, a, and there's a simultaneous equations for doing it. Well, people can do, they don't have any trouble doing that too. They converge, okay? And that's just strictly private information. Um, <clears throat> well, from there we went to, uh, oh, electric power markets, gas markets, all kinds of stuff, got into policy and, you know, and that's a long story and I'm not gonna tell it tonight. But anyway, then in the 80s, 90s, we did these trust experiments. And here's the crash and burning. <laughs> okay. Now, you uh, imagine you've been recruited to the lab, and you're one of, say, a dozen, maybe 16, two end two subjects. And uh, you have been uh, randomly paired with someone else in the room. You'll never know who that is. You'll be paid privately and separately. You're going to play this just once, once and only once. And so suppose you're person number one. If you move right, the game's over and you each get $10. Okay, if you pass to two, think of the, uh, imagine there's some synergy here between these two individuals. It's like uh, an investor and an inventor, maybe, or something. So uh, the, t the $10 is invested, it's tripled. You can even split that, two if, if two can move right and split that evenly, which one gets $15 and, and two gets his original 10 plus the, plus the 15 is 25, or he can move down and take all the money. Well. This was supposed to be a game that would really discourage ones from passing to two because twos will defect on that offer to cooperate. So here we are. We've got 53% moving right, but 47% moving down. And of the ones moving down, two, the twos, two-thirds of them move to the right. There goes Max U. That didn't work here. So we've got to come to terms with this. Okay. Now, Smith... These trust games results wouldn't be a surprise to him, not based upon uh, the theory of moral sentiments, and I want to uh, I'll tell you why. Now, he was, and moreover, Adam Smith's agents are strictly self-interested, both when they go into markets and also when they are operating uh, in, in their neighborhoods. And I want, let's see why now. Nevertheless, these self-interested people are other-regarding because his way approach to that is not the modern way of thinking about it at all, and he's right. He's dead right. Okay, now what's sentiments about? It's about human sociality as other-regarding conduct. Conduct is an 18th century word. You know, it, it, it's a, a frequency of occurrence rose in the 17th and 18th century peaked out and it's not a word that you, that you hear that much today. So uh, uh, my colleague Bart Wilson uh, 
taught me to uh, go to Samuel Johnson's dictionary, first dictionary of the English language, uh, published shortly before the theory of moral sentiments. And by the way, reviewed by Adam Smith, because he was competent to do it. He, I mean, you know, completely competent to, to, to review this first uh, English, and that's, that's a great paper by Adam Smith. Okay, and the sentiments is also about rule-following conduct is propriety and fitness. Smith uses this word fitness. Charles Darwin read the theory of moral sentiments. He felt that sentiments was the thing that probably was very unique. Or this capacity for sentiments was unique to, uh, uh, to human species. And, and so he's, he picked up very much on that, although he, he, he started to lose he started to have doubts. You know, why do elephants cry? But uh, <clears throat> also it's about, the, you see, rules emerge by consent and become conventions. Uh, it's about accounting for social order in pre-civil society. Smith's idea is this has ancient beginnings, you see. And long before we get to the civil order of government, people are already well-practiced in, in sort of rule-following. Uh, it's about sympathy and mutual sympathetic fellow feeling. Uh, the word empathy doesn't come into the English language until about, about 1905. So, but it, it clearly, Adam Smith has the idea, mutual fellow, fellow feeling. Equilibrium if it exists is in rule space, not outcome space. It has to do with these rules. Fair and the theory of moral sentiments refers to fair play. Unfair means foul. That's, by the way, the word, read Anna Wisbicka, the linguist. She's at Australian National University. Uh, she's a great uh, Polish linguist. And, and read her book on English. She will tell you that fair is a unique English word. It has no translation into any other European language, let alone any other non-European language. And it has to this note, it is uniquely, it has to do with a sports metaphor, uh, the fair play. And, and now, now that English use of fair, you see, in the 16th and, or, or, or the 17th and 18th century, remember that's when wealth creation started to take off in Northern Europe. I don't think it's independent of, of what the English, the, the way English, the English were thinking about things, okay? Uh, okay, uh, actions are signals that convey intentions in conduct, and their meaning is read imperfectly from context. Propriety evolved into property in the civil order of government. Now that's the world, that's in one page, that's the whole book, okay? Sorry, I don't have much time. Uh, and here's a fundamental axiom, which is that common knowledge of self-interest, that is, for each, more is beneficial, less is hurtful, that underlies all of this. Now, why does other regarding action depend on knowledge that all are self-interested? Well, it's fairly simple, because the knowledge of who benefits or is hurt by an action is essential for social competence. If I take an action uh, with my neighbor and he's made better off, I know he's benefit, he benefits from my action. If he's made worse off, he's hurt by it. How do I know that? Because, he's, because I'm automatically assuming he's self-interested. That's why. Okay? I don't... I don't act to maximize that self-interested utility. It's an input into these rules. That's, that's a very, very important uh, distinction, and Adam Smith's got this nailed. So uh, in, in our matur maturation process, you see learning and learning to be, be, be social, quote, we humble the arrogance of our self-love to bring it down to what others will go along with. Uh, he uses the word go along with 41 times. He wants you to get it, okay? <clears throat> and he's, he's got a great mental experiment. He, 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 you know, his ex mental experiments are as good as Einstein's. 
He said, imagine an individual being brought up in complete isolation from any other individual. He says, that individual can no more know what it means for his mind to be defi uh, deformed than to know that his face is, being, is to be deformed. He says, bring him into society and you give him the mirror he needs. Now that, in a very short statement, tell, tells you you see this, uh, where Adam Smith is coming from. So we are creatures of our interaction with other creatures. And that starts very, very uh, early. <clears throat> okay, here's a, a new laboratory experiment, a trust game, uh, similar to the many that we did in the 90s, and I gave you an example before. Now, okay, um, this is pretty much the payoffs, very close to what we saw before, except it's, oh, and the right is, is the equilibrium of the play. You see, remember in the argument I gave you before, uh, one should never pass to two because it'll defect. So the equilibrium of this game is for one to, uh, to, to move right and, and stop the game. Same thing here, except now uh, the $12 is, is tripled. There's an equal split. Or if two goes down and defects, one nevertheless still gets, gets $6, but two, you see, is getting the, the the, the lion's share of it. And the reason why we're doing that is because I'm going to, we're going to modify this and allow for punishment. <clears throat> so here's the results 25 years later. Now, pretty much the same. We've got a few more people uh, moving down, 55%, rather than whatever it was we had before, 47, I think. But on the other hand, the booby prize is not zero, it's six. So uh, th these games are not independent of what being uh, th are, they're paid, but that makes a difference. But that's not where the main action is. So we have less than half playing the equilibrium the game, passed to two, and as we got before, we got two thirds of them playing right. You see. And, uh, <clears throat> okay, the standard self-interest action model here fails. Well, now there were two fixes that uh, followed in the 1990s. The first was that, well, you just add the other person's payoff into your preference function. Utility is not just defined on your own outcome, it's defined on your own and the other. And then you just call it social preferences. Okay, and then you fit the data to that utility function. And of course, uh, that's all right in experimental economics because you can always run more experiments, okay, to test that. Uh, <clears throat> and then the second uh, fix was, there's an analogy with exchange here and call it reciprocity. Now, I and my colleagues took that route. Smith would reject both. The first, because he sees it as, as false, Social is about relationships, not preferences. And second, giving a name to what people are doing doesn't explain it. Okay, calling it reciprocity explains nothing. You don't solve the puzzle by giving a name to what people are doing. And so uh, <clears throat> I really learned a lot from this book. <laughs> okay, now a general rule in sentiments indicates why two-thirds of player twos do not take most of, all of the money, most all of the money, and why over half of the player ones might pass to them. It's what we call beneficence proposition one. Uh, Smith doesn't uh, name it. He just states it on page 78. Three or uh, four key propositions he state there, and then another one a couple of page pages later. And here's the proposition. Properly motivated, that means intentional, actions that benefit others alone deserve reward. This is because of the gratitude others feel in response to such actions. That's, that's the general proposition, and it applies uh, immediately to this game. Uh, the results are consistent with this model in sentiments. You see, so knowing the action taken and the action not taken by player applying. See, player two sees what one could have done but didn't do and passed to him. 
That's important. Uh, so we have 18 of 27 player twos showing gratitude. And also, another part of Smith is self-command. I mean, it's not only the gratitude, you've got to resist the temptation to take, take the big, big thing. So, there's, so part of the whole Smith system is this, what, what libertarians call responsibility. It's part of it. It's broader than that. But I mean, uh, I mean, uh, uh, when we talk about responsibility, but he's talking about self-command. We we learn to acquire self-command, so the control is built in. You see, uh, among the individuals. Now, random assignment implies that the same proportion of player ones would have played right if they had been assigned position two. So, if we take 67% minus 55, that's 0.12, that's the proportion of ones that apparently are deterred from cooperation because they're not sure about the kind of person they're connected with, okay? The player twos, they know what player one did, <laughs> see? So you, you right away think about what people are doing in this game with this way of thinking that Adam Smith gives you. Okay, and there's more. Uh, here's beneficence proposition two. Beneficence is always free. It cannot be extorted by force. Failure to act beneficently or, quote, want, what he calls want of beneficence calls for no punishment because such actions tend to do no real positive evil. So in the trust games, we should not expect player twos to feel resentment and be willing to incur a cost to punish player ones for choosing not to be beneficent. That's their respected right. How do we test that? Well, let's set it up so that if one decides not to offer cooperation to two, one moves right, going for the equilibrium of the game, 12-12, but play passes to two. Two then now chooses the equilibrium 12-12, or if he doesn't like it, like it that she didn't move down, uh, he can punish her by taking $2 away from him for her and at a cost of $2 to himself. So now notice we're adding here a dominated option. Well, in Max own analysis, all, these op all of that's irrelevant, you see. Uh, but in sentiments, that's what it's all about. People are choosing uh, 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 options that are dominated by other choices and they're not doing it because they're social creatures, okay, and they're, and they're following these rules. Uh, so here it is. Do, do, do people punish one of beneficence? No. 61% of the pairs, 38 pairs, the player one moved right, and not a single two punished. We first ran 25 pairs, and nobody punished. And I told Bart, this is incredible. There isn't any theory that predicts everything. All of the, uh, let's, let's run some more. Well, we gave up. He, Adam Smith is bat batting 1,000% on this. Okay, he's absolutely right. There's no reason to, to feel resentment about that, and people are not doing it, not showing it. But notice here, that the trust signal of beneficence is now ambiguous. Now, when one moves to two, it's not clear that he's being un uh, unconditionally benevolent with that choice because maybe he's, he's moving down because he's afraid of fear of punishment on the right. Well, and sure enough, now more 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 two's defect. Okay but you can explain it in terms of, the, uh, of the, the signal not being now clear. Okay, there's more. Injustice proposition one. Improperly motivated, that's intentional actions that are hurtful to others alone deserve punishment. This is because of the resentment others feel in response to such actions. So suppose tier two defects on the offer of player one to cooperate. Well, this proposition predicts that many player ones will feel resentment or will incur a cost to punish player twos. And here's the game. So now, if uh, one passes to two and two decides to defect on it, play goes back to one. One then chooses the defection outcome, 642, or at a cost of $2 to himself, he can really wallop. He can, he can really, really hit this, uh, this two. 
you see, and reduce his payoff to only four. <clears throat> All right, now I want to give you a, a way of analyzing these games <laughs> from the perspective of thinking the way Adam Smith would do. Okay. And this sentiments, you see, involves benefit or hurt, inferred intentions. It involves imagining the other's situation. And you may, and, and Smith's point is this may be done insensibly. You just, you know, you, you, you acquire kind of the habit of doing that. You, 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 you're, the impartial spectator checks that out. Okay. And, and it also involves self-command. Okay. Well, what's the first point? Well, there's common knowledge that all players are strictly self-interested and non-satiated. The same thing as in traditional game theory. Exactly the same assumption. But action is guided by who is hurt or benefits from the action and an inference of intent. Hurt, benefit, and intentions are inferred from alternative actions not taken. And then uh, in the beneficence uh, proposition, intentional beneficence leads to gratitude, really uh, a feeling of gratitude, and that tends to uh, invoke a reward, a, 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 a tendency to want to reward that behavior. And then in the second proposition, or the, the first uh, injustice proposition, intentional hurt generates feelings of resentment and provokes uh, punishment. So then you apply backward induction to the game tree to determine who benefits his hurt from an action at each node to judge intent. Each player's impartial spectator imagines herself in the role of the other in judging intent and probable responses. And then it becomes, the forward play is a signaling game. It's a conversation where people are, intentions are being, you see, uh, conveyed. Uh, and then, so open question is, in, in the beneficence proposition, would player one cooperate in the player two's role? Would player two see that? And so on. Okay. Uh, so here's the punishment often. No, notice the 24% of ones punish defection in the lower right-hand side. But more ones now play down, okay? Because more ones now are willing to play down because they have, they have this ace in the hole. They can, they can punish that guy, you see? So that'll, that'll get him in line. Well, that's a very much a mixed signal, though, for the twos. And we actually have more two, uh, twos, you see, here uh, playing down than uh, on the right than you have in the, the baseline game on, on the left. The, on the left. So beneficence must be free. It cannot be extorted. That's an important part of what he's saying. So Smith says there are two pillars to society, beneficence and justice. Beneficence is less essential to the existence of society than justice. Society may subsist, though not in the most comfortable state, without beneficence. But the prevalence of injustice must utterly destroy it. Beneficence, he says, is the ornament which embellishes, not the foundation which supports the building. It's sufficient to recommend by no means necessary to impose. I mean, you know, this actually this 18th century English, when you get used to it, it's beautiful. Sufficient to recommend, but no means necessary to impose. Justice, on the contrary, is the main pillar that upholds the whole edifice. So let's consider now, I'm going to show you one of my la the last experiment here. Consider choice between our experimental pillars. Now, we live in a world with both. We live in a world where there's both beneficence and justice. But Smith is telling us which of these two are most important. And so to do an experiment where people have to choose uh, is relying a really important insight that Hayek had. He said that the proper study of social science is the study of what is not. You're not going to learn about what is 
by studying what is. You've got to study what is not to see what the alternatives are, what the, what, what the opportunity cost is for the, for the institutions, the, the situations that have survived. Well, we can do that in the lab. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty easy sport. You know, that's the easiest thing in the world. We can do those kind of exercises. <clears throat> and and I, I did them in, we did them our, in, in electric power because there wasn't anyone, there wasn't anyone knew anything about electric power. It wasn't being traded, but we traded it in the, in, the, in the lab. And we can go to Australia and New Zealand. We got all these skeptics that say you can't do it. We put them in the experiment and they do it. And so we ask them, well, now what's wrong with the experiment? You did it. And that, see, that puts the burden of proof on them. They can't make up the facts, you see. And when no one's done something, boy, are humans good at making up the facts, you see, of what that would be like. So, <clears throat> but suppose you could choose. Well, here's the two pillars. Right move and you're playing a game of beneficence. Left move and you're playing a game of justice. Uh, uh, down move, I think uh, Smith would call that the rude society. <laughs> so equilibrium is the rude society. Uh, <clears throat> okay, equilibrium has now falls to only 20%. Beneficence is 30%. Justice is 50. People go for the justice. And in fact, if you do an efficiency calculation, that's, that's, that beats right play. Uh, <clears throat> now, in sentiments, justice proposition one is used by Smith to explain the origin of property rights. Common feelings of resentment toward improperly motivated actions of a hurtful nature within close-knit communities is the origin of the civil order of law and of punishment proportioned to resentment. Quote, as the greater and more irreparable the evil that is done, the resentment of the sufferer runs naturally the higher. So that's why uh, murder carries the largest punishment. Next comes theft and robbery. Then comes violation of contract. Interesting. That's not as serious as theft and robbery. You know what Adam Smith's explanation of that is? It's right out of Kahneman and Tversky. It's the asymmetry of gains and losses. To be dispossessed of that which you already have is more serious than just taking from you your expectation of gain. And in contract, that's all that's being frustrated is the expectation of gain. You don't have it yet. And that's, that's subject to judgment, of course. Uh, under contract law, but it's not criminal, you see. So it's, it's not as serious. Smith's got all this figured out. And, he, you know, he's anticipating. The, I didn't give you the proposition. He's got great propositions, you see, on the asymmetry between gains and losses. He derives it from what he says is this fundamental asymmetry between our joy and our sorrow, the depths to which we can fall are far greater than the amounts we, we can rise in our joy. This is very asymmetric. And so he, he's got an undergirding explanation of why there's an asymmetry between gains and losses. So anyway, under the rule of law, and this is the classical liberal heritage, justice is a residue. Justice is what is left over after introducing penalties for unjust actions. Society seeks the good, achieves human betterment by discouraging the bad, theft, robbery, violation of contract, bearing false witness, and so on. It's just, you know, right out of the Decalogue. And <clears throat> so um, in Smith's conception, we live in this big playing field. It's not level but it's got boundaries, okay? It's got boundaries and there are rules, and if you violate those rules, then there's penalties, you see, to prevent the bad. But otherwise, it's wide open. 
what a great system. You know, it's wide open for exploration, for innovation, for doing all kinds of things. Now, you're going to discover th later technology changes and things happen, and you're going to find things that, are, that do harm. And so now you're gonna, you, you no doubt have to bring in new rules, you see, to do that. But that's out of history. That's out of experience. And it's easier to agree, agree you see, on what's hurtful than what, what, what the grand plan is for the future you see, because of you know, all of the unintended consequences that Jeff was talking about earlier today. <clears throat> so how about sentiments on the wealth of nations? Uh, well, property rights are necessary but not sufficient in wealth. Smith adds what I call his axiom of discovery, quote, the propensity to truck, barter, and exchange one thing for another. You see, Human sociality and sentiments is expressed in exchange or trade, you see, in wealth. So it's back to Hume's notion. It's just commerce, the disinterested and interested commerce. Now, and now in the Wealth of Nations, the third party enforcement of property means reduced dependence on trust. Okay? Giving and receiving are now simultaneous. You see, we, we discharge that obligation now. You're paid whether it's barter or money. So I don't owe you one, I paid you now. Whereas my father, when, he, uh, when we were on the farm and he returned a borrowed horse to the farmer he bought it from, he says, tell me when you're ready to put those windows in and I'll come and help you. Okay, but you don't. The system no longer depends, you see, upon all that mental accounting and, and, and those personal relations. Now we have a external enforcement, you see, of third-party enforcement. So that sets the stage, you see, for trading with strangers and every, all kinds of people you don't know. Uh, sentiments and wealth both emphasize process, not only outcomes. Wealth of Nations is about a discovery process. You see, there's an exchange. That leads to a price. As soon as there's a price out there, that facilitates comparisons. You see, you, you, you can start now, hmm, you're, you're, you're growing corn and hogs. Now there's a price out there for corn and hogs. Hmm, maybe I should be growing. I think I should be growing more corn and less hogs, given those prices. So people, you see, start to react to that, make decisions, and then they discover specialization. Specialization is not something out there that markets aggregate the information on. It's, you know, read Smith on the, uh, uh, the philosopher and the porter. Okay, the common street part and the philosopher. They were playmates as kids. Well, but they go through a lot of experiences afterwards, and of course this involves markets and everything, and they end up having completely different lives. So he, that's Adam Smith's way of thinking about specialization. So the neoclassical marginal utility revolution too eagerly abandoned process for equilibrium. See, my first supply and demand experiments just seem magical uh, in finding the equilibrium with only private information. But you see, we had no process way of thinking about stuff. And somehow, you see the, uh, the neoclassical tradition and the marginal uh, revolution of the 1870s uh, kind of swept all that out. We, all of that stuff was replaced with equilibrium stuff. It wasn't just added to it and supplemented. It was replaced. And I think we've been in trouble ever since. Okay, summary. Morality is discovered through rules governing the approval or disapproval of our conduct propriety, rights to take action. Propositions on beneficence explain trustworthiness and games. We couldn't do that when, when this data started to come in. We didn't have any explanation. We got a way of thinking about it now. Uh, justice propositions explain the punishment of hurtful actions. Beneficence and justice enables human social psychological betterment and sets the stage for the rule of law in national economies. Beneficence is the ornament, justice the foundation. Justice is that should be infinite. 
Justice is the inf an infinite opportunity space of action left over after using punishment to discourage acts of injustice. What is he, what's the great quotation in uh, The Wealth of Nations about what natural liberty? Every man, as long as he does not violate the laws of justice, is left perfectly free to pursue his own interests, his own way. Well, but you've got to read the theory of moral sentiments to find out what Smith means by justice, own interest, and own way. You read the theory of uh, you read the Wealth of Nations as I, as I did at the University of Kansas as a graduate student. There's no hint anywhere in that book that he wrote the theory of moral sentiments. You know, we, I always cite myself. We all cite ourselves today. Adam Smith didn't cite that. So uh, it's, how am I doing on time here? Okay, okay I, then if there's time, I do want to tell a, a personal story, an experience I had that I thought a lot about and I related it to all of what Smith's talking about in the theory of moral sentiments and it gave me uh, I think a better understanding of what he's talking about when he, when he talks about the importance of context and, the, and, and, and under my interpretation uh, that it's all about rules, a, a mapping from context which includes payoffs. The context includes the money involved but other things you see, into outcomes. It's the mappings into outcomes. Okay, in Tucson, the homeless people occupy islands at major intersections. And in the suburbs, they have newspapers. They sell newspapers. And uh, so near my home at uh, Swan and Sunrise, there's a familiar figure always on the same island. Interesting, he's always on the same island. These guys have property rights. I don't know what's going on there, but they, they you know, there's not any conflict. Or if it is, it's, it's not evident, and they've got it resolved. This guy's always on the same island. And so I would occasionally buy a paper from him and uh, give him $5 for the $2 paper. Well, the problem is, you know, I don't read, I don't read print media anymore. I do it all on a, on a computer. So I'm um, coming up, I'm on the left-hand turn lane and the familiar figure is out there. So I roll down the window and I hand him $5. With his left hand, he's reaching for the $5 and with the right hand, he's handing him the newspaper. And I say, that's all right, you can keep the newspaper. He pulled back the newspaper and he pulled back the hand reaching for the $5. He looked at me and he says, I only sell newspapers. <laughs> Boy, did I screw up. <laughs> uh, uh, so anyway, <clears throat> I, I recovered. I said, I'll take the paper. <laughs> and we smiled and he took the $5. It's okay. But you see the you see the, how special that context is, and also you see I broke a rule. He's a businessman. He's on that island to sell newspapers. He's not there for a handout. Uh, this was confirmed two or three months later. We were in a Safeway store next to his island. It was late, later in the afternoon, about 3.30, and he was in there, and the, and the local high school students had, were, had, had been let out of school, and so he was talking to three or four of them there, and, and Candace uh, turns to me and, and says, you know, he doesn't really look very well, very good. I says, I, he says, I think I, I'm going to give him $5. I said, don't. I, I said, ask him if he's got a newspaper. <laughs> so she asked him, do you have a newspaper? And he perked right up. He says, oh, yes, yes, I'll, I'll go out and get it. 
well, we were about ready to leave. And she says, well, I'm, we're, we'll, we can pick it up. We can come out. He says, no, no, I'll, I'll bring it in. So he went out to his island, got a newspaper, brought it back. And he said, you know, some of my customers want yesterday's newspaper. So if I have any left over, I always carry them over. So th this guy, he serves customers. <laughs> we're his customers. I mean, you know, uh, uh, tremendous. But anyway, I thought a lot about that. And of course, it's an, also an example you see where the rule, I changed my rule. I, I learned from that experience. So you have adaptation going on, you see. Now, I think that's, I now see that, that little experience helped me see exactly what Adam Smith's talking about. Where the, how these rules develop. And uh, we do it to each other, you see. And it's a means by which we have this great capability to live in harmony with our neighbors. And we're nevertheless all self-interested. I didn't have any doubt that he preferred more money to less. And I'm sure he had no doubt that I preferred more money to less. But you see, that's not, not the whole of the of the context that need to be taken into account. Uh, <clears throat> so, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So, any questions? I, you know, you can order free copy of the Theory of Moral Sentiments online at Liberty Fund. I highly recommend that you do that. Uh, they, right now, you can't get the kind of the Oxford edition that's been available in the, in the past, but you can get the, uh, the original edition of the Theory of Moral Sentiments uh, published uh, I mean, uh, republication of it with Dougal Stewart's uh, biography uh, <clears throat> in it. And the nice thing about having a, uh, an online copy or your own copy that you've downloaded is it's searchable, you see. And that's really interesting to, uh, to, to you can just learn a lot by just getting on top of Adam Smith's very precise use of language. And the words, see, you see the word behavior, he sometimes used that, but it's always in con conjunction with another word, conduct and behavior, something else, because behavior meant in those days meant what a thing does. It's not what a human does. A human it has to do with conduct, you see. So whereas today, uh, behavior, we just use behavior for everything, and our laboratory stuff and all kinds of stuff. There isn't that kind of, see, see conduct suggests a, a pattern, a lifestyle, and then there's maybe particular instances of it that it might, you might think of as actions that involve behavior, but it's, but it's a broader thing. So. <clears throat> Thank you very much for your talk. found it absolutely fascinating. Um, a question I have when I understand, I think, where you, you were, what you were doing and how you referred to Adam Smith, that a lot of it is about cooperation and society. And, but when you described your ex experiments, I think you, you made a point that you guaranteed the participants that this was a one-off game, that you're never going to have to deal with this person again. Oh, you mean in the trust experiment? The trust experiment, no, yeah. Not in, the, not in the market experiment. In the trust experiment, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, that, that's a little discordant for me, that if uh, you know, we behave certain ways because we're in a society, and I'm going to do to you, and I want to know that you'll do it back to me in the future, but with yes. a, a guarantee of, hey, this is a, a one-shot deal. Can you elaborate on why people might not just you're, go for the money and go home. No, you are absolutely correct that uh, it's important to do uh, repetition of games, repeated games with the same partners, all of that sort of thing. But you see what really blew our mind here is this, was all of this cooperation in a one-shot uh, game. 
and now, and, and you see, game theorists have, uh, when they think of repeat interaction and the possibilities of cooperation evolving out of that, they're thinking about a single game between, say, two people that are playing it. They're not, it, it, it kind of stumps them, what do you do when people are playing a series of games, okay? See, 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 see we're involved in a huge number of games of life, and, all, and many different. But the point here that I think from the framework of thinking about the way Smith does is that we, <clears throat> we evolve styles and we involve uh, ways of dealing with, with different situations. Uh, maybe the payoffs are different, but a lot of the general rules nevertheless apply. And so he's trying to get, you know, telling us what these general rules are. And now, uh, we years ago did r repetition of some of these trust games, and, and people very predominantly uh, converged to the cooperative outcome. You see, after you, after you uh, repetition with the same person, that slips if it's not the same person. Uh, and in fact, the, 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 what you have is that you can just, there's a monotone relationship. The greater the probability of playing the same person again, the greater the cooperation rate, okay, that you get in the re repeat, uh, the repeat interactions. But the reason why, when, in returning to those games that were I'm emphasizing this is that we've got an explanation of why it works so well in a one-shot game. And I don't have any doubt, but we need to do that, do repetition. And, and, and they tend to get there pretty quick, especially if they can punish in the sub-game. See, see the, the justice thing tends to converge more rapidly than the beneficence thing. The beneficence, you can, the guy defects on you, so on the next round, what you can do is hit him with the equilibrium. In other words, don't pass to him. But in the, uh, in the justice version, you can punish him in the sub-game in that one time and then play it again, <laughs> you see. And, and that, that works quicker, okay? And that's basically why uh, justice is the foundation and beneficence is, is an ornament. Yes. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, that was fantastic. I love game theory and learning about Adam Smith is great. You mentioned something about um, some sort of uh, stance of instead of looking at what is, look at what isn't to reveal that which is. I'm butchering whatever you said, I'm sure. But I'm just wondering. Um, you know, you, 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 you speak a lot about the greatness of Adam Smith and how he really nailed it. He, you said he batted a thousand percent. Amazing. In that one game, yeah. What did he get horribly wrong that, you know, I want to be aware of as I... As I... Uh, we're, uh, we haven't finished. <laughs> and we have some puzzles. Uh, that I thought, think I made a prediction thinking about uh, uh, a game the way or a situation that the, the way I see Adam Smith thinking about it, and it didn't work. So we've got to uh, come to terms with not only the successes but the failures. I think we'll understand uh, more and better kind of the work that that system, <clears throat> that system can, uh, can do. And, but it is a lot, I think it's an important contribution that experimental economics has made is this capacity to, to study things that don't now exist, variations. Because that can help you understand why things are the way they are. If you can ask, can come up with conjectures about alternatives that may have been tried and they didn't work, then you can kind of pursue that. And, and economic historian, Lynn mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of affinity between experimental economics and economic history because economic historians are very good at going back to 
early periods, monasteries, all kinds of places, and getting data on things that no longer, we no longer do it that way, you see. And so that helps them to understand uh, what is by seeing some, getting data on something that is, is not. And I think that's a great, incredible uh, insight by Hayek. Hayek, he never, of course, he never linked it up with experiments. But I, I, I think he would, uh, he probably thinks that's scientism. <laughs> but it's a beautiful way to uh, actually uh, show what was right about uh, Hayek. <clears throat> okay, any others? Um, this may be a relevant question, in which case I'm interested in the answer, and if not, you can just say no. Um, so in, I believe, the 1980s, Robert Axelrod developed a computer simulation around um, tit-for-tat behavior, which seems related to what you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm interested in trust and cooperation, with, which uh, a researcher from New York, Russell Harden, uh, spoke about. So, can, if I'm right that there, that this is all in the same playing field, um, can you? Maybe everybody else is suffering at, at my own edification. Well, but can you connect them? Well, well, I think tit for tat is one of the kinds of you know. There's all kinds of rules: first come, first serve. Uh, there's a, a lot of rules like that. That that came in early in our human experience that solved problems. Uh, you know, uh, first come, first serve, that's the beginning of property. You were there, it's yours. And now others have to, have to, have to, have to get rights from you. Uh, okay, so, um, <clears throat> uh, so I know I think that's very relevant, and, and, and this is what the Axelrod thing was able to show, and he, he did it, the first, first did it with Prisoner's Dilemma game, and it was a contest, and people, people could uh, submit strategies. And Anatole Rappaport, who was at the time at the University of Michigan, I was at Purdue, and we had him down a couple times at Purdue to talk. Also, Ward Edwards, who was at uh, Michigan, and uh, so we had some connections with those, uh, with those early uh, psychologists. Well, Anatole Rappaport had done a huge number of prisoner's dilemma games. And, and he did simulation strategies against people. You know, I mean, he, he did, well, oh, he, he first discovered that the people that were put, that would uh, were able to put together a cooperation. They were basically using tit for tat, and so he put his entry in that. When he put it in the contest, he just put in what he found that his subjects did with success, and he won the contest. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and that just came out of the lab. That didn't, you know, all of these other other entries were complex things, you know, and logical and everything, and. But he had this simple one. Well, it can be beat by there are strategies. It's not robust against everything. But anyway, uh, uh, for what it's worth, that's that's a connection I would make. Uh, 